is BJ Council. I view the world through the lens of having been followed by a white clerk as a child while shopping in a five and dime. I'm a retired police executive and own UN50, which gives guidance on surviving interactions with police. I'm Harmony Chavis, and I view the world through the lens of one of the most misunderstood and diverse generations in our nation's history. I'm a social worker and a believer of radical kindness and love as modalities of healing. My name is Andrew Council. I view the world through the lens of a generational camera phone. I wake up as a black male and go to bed as a black male. I am surviving this never-ending court case we commonly call life in the best way I know how. All right, welcome back to UN50. Uh, hopefully uh, you guys are doing well. It's getting to be springtime, so it's uh, getting a little warm, and I am so excited. Uh, I don't do winter, and so um, I'm excited. So thank you for those of you who are joining us for the first time, and thank you for those of you that are coming back and support UN50 as we uh, do the work that we do. Um, one of my co-hosts, Harmony Char- Chavis, um, was interested when we were talking about civilian police review boards and she didn't even know we had one in Durham. I was like, where have you been? And um, so Mr. DeWarren Langley, who is the chair of the civilian police review board for the city of Durham, has been chairing that for a few years. He'll explain how long he's been doing that. But I'm also, um, he's going to talk to us about what that is, what that looks like for the community, why it's important to have that here. I'm definitely one, I think there's a lot of discussion as to the power of civilian review boards, and that's not really what we're going to discuss. We're just going to talk about what's available here in this community. And maybe those of you in, out, in, in other communities might think that what we have, you know, works. Um, but Mr. DeWarren uh, K. Langley is the busiest man in the world. Uh, he's always doing something. But one of the first things that, that we need to make sure that you understand that uh, he is the executive director for the Charles Hamilton and Houston Foundation, who work with young black males and making sure that they have and, and understand how to work their strategies for socioeconomic uh, wealth and and managing life and education and so they can be successful. I'll let him talk to you about that. But one of the things about his organization and you, why I didn't realize it, uh, DeWarren, until I, before I called you the other day to ask you to come up that you started in 2016. I started UN5O in 2015. I thought it was like, hey, we started kind of the same time. So, <laughs> but you had them getting it done. Um, but the thing that he's doing and the work that he's doing for young black males um, is making sure that they don't end up interacting with law enforcement. I mean, because they're, they're educated, they're, they're doing what they need to do, they're, they, they have the strategies, he's giving them those good solid foundations and um, it's just a good organization. And so we'll have, um, we'll have a link uh, for his organization uh, that you can, uh, take a look at and hopefully if you feel the need or feel the will to push to uh, donate, feel free to do that as well. So Mr. Langley, thank you for coming on. So first I really do want you to talk about your organization because I think that's, that's, that's huge. I really wanted uh, you to let folks know who, what you do, why you do what you do uh, about the Charles Hamilton Foundation. Okay, well, first, I'd like to thank you for this opportunity to be on. But yes, I do serve as executive director of the Charles Hamilton Houston Foundation, which provides a continuum of programs, services, and support to facilitate academic leadership 
and professional development to prepare boys and young men of color to succeed in the competitive workforce. Our mission is to educate, engage, empower, and equip boys and young men of color with the strategies they need to secure social economic success. We do this by delivering innovative leadership and professional development programs for college and career readiness. We facilitate connection with professional opportunities to become high results leaders in corporation, government, nonprofits, and entrepreneurial ventures. And we also work to transform academic and local policies and practices so that they are more responsive to the needs and concerns of boys and young men of color. We have two main programs, our Young Men of Excellence program, which work with boys and uh, boys of color in grades six through 12. And we provide career readiness and college exploration, uh, career exploration and college readiness support. And then our career pathway program, which works with young men of color in community college, college or graduate school, helping them facilitate from the classroom into the workforce. That's a lot. Well, you know what, really, you do a lot, but what kind of caught my ear, because I, I obviously I've read what's on your on your uh, website, um, is that you do other you do work to try to change the systems that won't hinder black and brown youth and black males doing what they need to do. I mean, so you're I mean, it's just you're working with the youth, but you're also looking out beyond your organization. And so what are what are the things that hinder the growth and the support that they need? Uh, I think that's huge. I think that's that that's just huge. People have to realize this. You got to do got to do a lot of stuff. Right. Part of our philosophy is understanding that you can work with the outputs of these systems, which is our young people. You know, they go through education systems. They go through programs and services that are offered by our local government and our community and there are certain outcomes that come with going through those processes and systems. And oftentimes they don't always respond to the developmental needs of boys and young men of color. And so we can focus our attention on helping our young boys, our boys and young men overcome these defects and, or just focus on the systems. But we take a both end approach, supporting the boys and young men, but also looking at how do we fix these systems to be more equitable and how they serve the boys and young men that interact with these systems, whether that's academic, professional, or uh, our judicial system. Yeah, I mean, Warren, I've known you for a while. You're very strategic about, you know, how you address the issues. And I think for me, uh, not as involved in the community as you. I'm out there a little bit, but the thing is, I think what people have to understand: if you want change, you got to you got to go and you got to be part of the getting into the system and understanding how it works and making a change for the better for all of us. And you do all of that, so so thank you for that. Uh, before we get started, what I want to do: I, I ask there are two questions I ask my guests: one up near the top of the, the interview, and then one near the end. Uh, so the first one is. Uh, so obviously you survived 2020. Uh, so having survived that with everything that's gone on, um, I mean, we know what the drill is. So having survived 2020, who is the Warren Langley now with the, with the experience and the lived experience that you had going through 2020? I think that I am now more unapologetic in my approach to <laughs> demanding change and holding people accountable who are leaders or instrumentalities of the systems 
that impact the lives of those that we serve. Uh, tragically, my father did not make it through 2020. He unfortunately mm-hmm. passed away in August of 2020. And that experience really helped me. It, it really honed in how precious and limited time is. You know, my dad was only 54 years young. Oh. And I could have never imagined him transitioning at that age. Wow. And going through that experience and, and thinking about, you know, um, when we had his service, uh, while he lived, it, it was it was rare that I heard nice things said about my dad. Um, but at his, at his service, I heard so many people saying things that I, I would have never imagined being said about my dad in terms of how they touched their, he touched their lives, the impact that he had. But what, what was really awakening from that whole experience is that oftentimes, the nicest things that are said about you are when you're gone. Yeah. And you can't lose sight of what you were put here for in terms of the difference you need to make being concerned about either the praise or the criticism that may come with what you know intuitively to be the purpose for what you were put here. So I'm just now going to be unapologetic and my advocacy and my efforts to improve the academic and professional outcomes for boys and young men of this community and the boys and young men that we serve through the Charles Hamilton Houston Foundation because um, they deserve to have the opportunity to live enriching, meaningful, and productive lives. And we can't allow these systems to be in place that are unresponsive, ineffective, or not living up to the expectations for which they were created. And I'm going to be unapologetic in my efforts to bring about those changes. Well, thank you. Um, That's awesome. And my condolences. I I really am resonating with you because, um, DeWarren, I kind of had that same thing for 2020 for me, uh, especially with with the work that I'm doing. I've decided that I have got to just speak my truth. Um, and I being a black police officer and, and saying some things that I feel like I have to say. And I, I mean, I got to do what I got to do. You know, the, like you said, the universe has you know, I got to do whatever the universe. And, and I'm I'm just looking to be able to when I get through that, I've done, a, you know, a decent job. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I've got to go with the spirit. So I, I really I'm sitting here going, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what, you know, how I was feeling myself that got to keep it moving and, and be unapologetic um, and do y'all peace as to whatever that is in this universe. So yeah, thank you for that. All right, so I guess, so how how long has the Civilian Review Board been in existence for the city of Durham? And uh, the city of Durham was authorized to implement the Civilian Police Review Board under section law 1998-142, Senate Bill 1509. And that gave the Uh, City of Durham, the authority to release uh, the complaint information that is filed against police officers because it is considered personnel records. And by law, personnel records of any employee is confidential. So in order for uh, the City of Durham to be able to create a board, a body of civilians that could review this information, it required special authority from the North Carolina General Assembly. So okay. this body has been around since 1998. Okay. I was still there then. I, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, but you were you when did you become the chair? I became ooh, I became chair. Well, I, I was appointed um to the board in 2010 and okay. I became chair probably 2014. Okay. I'm not being chair now going into my eighth year. Okay. All right, cool. Because I, I were I remember we were doing a lot of research about civilian reborn. In fact, we actually ended up going out to California to look at some stuff and, and went to a conference to make the, the decision. So, yeah, I remember some of that, but I couldn't remember the year. Um, so I guess what I let's just kind of go through the process as to what that looks like. Uh, BJ uh, is a citizen and I've, I have, you know, feel like I've behavior of an officer has been unprofessional toward me. And now I, I you know, I go, I don't, bring the report. I don't file a complaint with you. I file a complaint with the Durham City Police Department, correct? Correct. So the complaint process includes individuals that, and that could be a citizen or anyone that has any adverse interaction with uh, a police officer or personnel of the police department. And that individual can file a complaint with the police department. That could be by telephone, mail, online, or in person. Once that complaint is received, it is investigated by the Internal Affairs Unit of the Professional Standards Division of the Durham Police Department. They're the ones that investigate the complaint. And so that investigation consists of reviewing any documents that are submitted, witnesses that are listed, will be interviewed and contacted by the Internal Affairs Unit, and a determination will be made. Uh, the Internal Affairs Unit will send a determination letter to the complainant, and that letter will let them know what the determination is based on that investigation. And it also explains the appeal process. The appeal process allows for the complainant to file an appeal with the Office of the City Clerk within 30 business days of receiving the determination from the Internal Affairs Unit of the Police Department. That is what starts the process for the Civilian Police Review Board to review the complaint. The board minute, is- before, before you go on, because I, I might've missed it and I apologize. When you said determination, that means determining whether or not uh, the case, the, the officer is found guilty or not guilty? Well, if, if the, so in, in the case of when a determination is made, either it is unfounded, which is the incident did not occur, okay. or were not involved, they're either exonerated, the incident occurred, but officer acted lawfully and properly. The complaint can be not sustained, which is insufficient evidence to prove or disapprove the allegation, or the allegation can be sustained, which is the allegation is supported by sufficient evidence, or the last option could be policy failure, which is the allegation is true, but the actions of the agency or officer are inconsistent with agency policy. So those are the determinations that will be made okay. uh, during the investigation. Okay. If, okay. Okay. And then if the complainant is not satisfied with the outcome of that investigation, they can then file an appeal with the office of the city clerk, which then allows for the civilian police review board to consider that complaint. Okay. Okay. Now, let me, let me, let me, let me before you go on, because I want to, because I know we all, we all know what moment we're in right now across this country. So there, there's this, also this thing about, and, you know, we talked before we started, you know, officially starting the thing that we kind of have, it's a national narrative, but we have to look at what's going on locally. Uh, and of course, the national narrative is how come police officers get, police department gets to investigate themselves, 
You know what I'm saying? So how how does that, how are you guys when people, how do you, what is your response to that when people say, well, I thought, why am I going to file a complaint and they're just going to investigate themselves and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to, it's not going to go my way or whatever. So how do you, how do you counter that argument to tell people just file the complaint and let's go through the process instead of saying what I just said, they, they feel like since police are investigating themselves, it's never going to be that they're going to find an officer sustained. How do you counter that argument? I counter that argument to explain that there are a number of ways that uh, this process is transparent. One, uh, every quarter, the police department releases a professional standards report that indicates what type of complaints they've received and what the disposition of those complaints have been. So uh, civilians can find out that information about the type and nature of complaints that have been investigated by the Internal Affairs Unit. In addition, the reason why um, the police department conducts these investigations is because they thoroughly understand the policies, procedures that officers are held accountable to and the standard that they're expected to adhere to. And so they are the ones that initially conduct that investigation. However, if a civilian is not satisfied with the outcome of that investigation, then they can file an appeal with the Office of the City Clerk, which would then allow for the Civilian Police Review Board to consider uh, whether or not to grant a hearing. But whether or not a hearing is granted, the first thing the civilians need to understand is that the Civilian Police Review Board is consisting of nine citizens, every ordinary, uh, ordinary everyday citizens of this community that are appointed by the city um, the city manager and affirmed by the city council. Uh, it used to be prior to um, a few years ago where the city manager made the sole appointment to this board, but now those appointments have to be affirmed by the city council. Oh, wow. And when, so, so that is the, the one way, and, and that process came forth as a result of citizen input who believed that that, should have been, that needed to be an additional part of the process. And when the Civilian Police Review Board receives the uh, request for a hearing, that then requires the police department to turn over the complete investigative file for that complaint, meaning any notes, recordings, interviews, documents associated with that complaint is given to the members of the review board to review to determine whether or not uh, there was an abuse of discretion specifically uh, whether the police abused their discretion and how they conducted the investigation and whether the conclusions reached in that investigation are reasonable based on the information from that investigation. You know, I thank you, Duarte, for What stuck out is, I think, and I want to talk about, you know, the difference between how you feel about, obviously, the conversation that goes on about having more power. You know, they can fire folks or discipline or whatever. But what I, I appreciate what you just said was you're looking at the abuse of discretion. Mm -hmm. And and that's huge. Uh, and I don't know whether people understand that because then that kind of takes out the, well, I know BJ and I know for the most part, she probably just made a mistake. So I'm just going to kind of let that go. It, and so, and you, the agency can't do that now. So even if it is, because we know each other in the agency, I mean, we, we know each other. And sometimes we do, uh, 
you know, may not do what we need to do because of the discretion that we're allowed to have if we don't have this oversight. So the, the abuse of discretion, I think, is powerful. I appreciate that. And um, do you think, so how is that working for you guys? I mean, how, how is that working for the folks that come before you guys? How, how are they feeling about that? Well, that's not a, whether or not this board is consistent with the expectations of the community is not a question that we can answer. Uh, one of the things that we do annually is hold a community police relations forum for the purpose of being able to receive feedback from civilians, from the community as to one, uh, the, the, one of the main purposes is to explain the complaint process, but also to receive feedback from the public on that complaint process, as well as community police relations. And that then empowers us to make recommendations to the city manager and chief of police. And so when we're looking at whether there was an abuse of discretion, mm -hmm. uh, prior to an investigation being closed, it does go up the chain of command in the police department. So there are multiple um, individuals that have to review the investigative file to determine whether or not the conclusions reached are reasonable based mm -hmm. on the evidence or based on the information that was gathered in that um, in that investigation. And I know for me, uh, I feel comfortable and confident knowing that there are nine individuals appointed by the city manager, affirmed by the city council that come from different walks of life of this community, that if and when a civilian doesn't agree with the outcome of that investigation, there is another body that takes a look at that investigation to determine were the questions that the police department asked appropriate? Right. Did they ask the type of questions that were necessary based on the allegations that were alleged in the complaint? Were all the witnesses contacted? Was the information conveyed accurately documented and given due consideration when they were reaching their conclusions? All of these things are are factors that we consider when we are examining whether or not to hold a hearing. And even if the board does not determine to hold a hearing, we are still within our authority to make recommendations to the city manager and chief of police based on the nature of the complaint that, that we review. So even if we don't necessarily hold a hearing, we can still make recommendations that require a written response from the city manager. And that information is public. If anyone would like that information, they could contact the office of the city manager and request the type of recommendations that have been submitted by the Civilian Police Review Board and to review what the responses have been. Okay, I'm probably going to ask a question. I'm not sure if it's, uh, it's how, how, anyway, I'm going to ask it. It's what it sounds like is you guys kind of, kind of do what citizens probably would do uh, like, well, did you ask this question? Did you ask this question? You know, I mean, because you're kind of following up to make sure it, like you're looking at the, the investigation. You're saying if if in your mind, well, I would have asked that. I would have asked that. And oh, I didn't think about asking that. I mean, because you're you you can. I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is you you're kind of saying. The nine of you are saying, well, they asked all the questions and. You know, 
however you guys determine, you know, the whatever the, the citizen filing the concern with you guys, if they've asked everything that they should ask, then I think that's good. It's kind of like, does that make sense? Am I making sense? And you kind of you know, kind of looking at it from, OK, did you guys ask this question? So we're not only looking at the, <laughs> we're not only looking at the type of questions that are being asked, but based on the information that they are gathering, are the conclusions reached from that information reasonable? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the other prong to that, that, that analysis is not only looking at what type of information was gathered and how that information was gathered, but based on the information that the office, the investigators obtained and the conclusions reached in the investigation, are those conclusions reasonable based on that information? So wow. that's part of the analysis as well. So, so you have, how many, on average, do you guys get work? Citizens like, you know what? I'm I'm not really feeling what the police department just said. What's the average for you guys that you? How many complaints do you get where the citizen is just not happy and wants you guys to take a look at it? Well, we do um, every year um, when we present information. We do share the number of complaints that we've received. So just going back to 2015, we received two appeals and we didn't grant any hearings. In fiscal year 2016, 2017, we received two appeals and we granted zero hearings. In fiscal year 2017, 2018, we received one appeal and granted zero hearings. And in 2018, 2019, we didn't receive any appeals and we didn't grant any hearings. So our work really depends upon whether or not those who file complaints, have them investigated and receive a determination whether they decide to take it to that next step. Mm -hmm. Wow. We don't have the authority to independently launch investigations. It's really dependent upon whether a civilian determines that they're not satisfied with the outcome of an investigation. And then when we look at uh, fiscal year 2019 to 2020, we received one appeal and zero hearings granted. Wow. So it's not like we're receiving a overwhelming number of appeals. Uh, the most we received was in uh, 2014, 2015, where we received seven appeals. And that year, the board granted two hearings. Okay. Wow. I mean, that that actually says that's a good thing for the RPD, sounds like. And But I'm also wondering... Um, you know, you talked about what you guys do and we talked before we started again that, you know, how do we get people, because the work that I'm doing on UN50 is um, obviously, you know, comply and complain, uh, mm-hmm. get to the house. So the thing for me is how do we make it easy for a person to complain about this? You know, what is that process? You know, the police department making it Okay, and and I know they are because I mean they they have me out there doing some of my stuff. But I guess some of the things that I hear when I've been doing this thing for several years now is people still don't feel comfortable uh, filing complaints because there's just there's just this trust that the that it's just not going to be good, or they feel like why bother? So how do we kind of deal with that? I mean how how I mean I'm doing my work, you doing your work. So how how do we figure out a way to make it easier. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to dig up any dirt on, on Durham PD or any law enforcement agency, but if, if people have legitimate complaints, um, then the, if they feel the need, how do we make that easy for them? 
And, and I think that goes back to two of the main uh, community kind of outreach activities that we do in terms of our community police relations forum. And then when we also present to uh, community, civic or neighborhood groups, uh, try explaining one, the role of the civilian police review board, and then also explaining the complaint and appeal process and giving those groups and individuals an opportunity to share their insight. And when that information is shared with us, we then convey it in terms of whether or not we need to make any specific recommendations to the city manager um, in order to effectuate some of the concern that um, our community has. So I think that's a, a big part of, of what um, civilians, you know, citizens have a responsibility in doing is that if the system is not working, you know, consistent with their expectations, then we have to find ways for, for everyone to feel comfortable making recommendations as to what needs to change that would allow for them to have that comfort level around filing complaints. And one of the things that I emphasize mostly when I'm out presenting about the Civilian Police Review Board and discussing community police relations is that we, are, we have to look at community police relations in a local context. I know right now there's the George yep. Floyd case uh, that trial of, of his murder is currently being uh, tried and is shown on the news. And while that is, is definitely a tragedy and truly heartbreaking situation to have occurred, we have to be mindful of what is occurring in our locality and how and what efforts are underway to ensure that something like that will never happen in our community. And so I, I just always urge folks to, when having this conversation around community police relations to look at it from a local rather than national context, because we have some great men and women that serve this community, that do their best in trying to ensure that, I, that their service model is consistent with the expectations of the community. Um, our police chief, CJ Davis, um, in, the, in my volunteerism, I've always seen her very engaged and very in tune into the community. So we must be uh, mindful of these opportunities to engage in these conversations, but engaging them in a way that is constructive and um, looking at how we can improve these systems to ensure that they're responsive and suited for what our concerns are. You know, you, yeah, but you've been amen and all. I all the whole time you've been on this thing because that's exactly right. When I talk to, to when I do some of my community work, I'm I'm trying to get folks to narrow. You know, it's a it's a national conversation, but it's a local action, and and because it, it, you got to look at your individual uh, local agencies and get in there and do the work, do the work that you're doing. But you got to get involved. So I I appreciate the fact that, that that's how you communicate and and getting the message to yes. Like you said, it's a tragedy. He was murdered. I mean, all the stuff that we've seen, you know, Jacob Blake, all of that stuff. Um, but you need to you need the work is local. Mm -hmm. Conversation is national, but the work is local. And and you got to go in and sit down at the table and, and get the agency and, and do the, whatever you want. So I, I I'm just glad that you you said that, because I think that that's that's huge, um, you know, with and you know this too. you know, 18,000 police departments, local and state government across this country. And the bulk of them, I have less than 50 
law enforcement officers on their department. So you're talking small agencies. Um, they're the they're the majority. You know, we we always hear about the large organization, but the majority of police departments in this country are are less than have less than 50 employees. Um, so that that's where the work has to be done at, at the local level. Um, learning from you know obviously what's going on across national and the studies and the research and those types of things. But the work has to be, because it's different, it's different in Durham and it's different because I'm doing some work down in Kinston. It's different in Kinston. And mm -hmm. so you can't, you can't do what you do here in Durham. Uh, you might take some ideas from Durham, but Kinston is, is a whole different, whole different ball game. So, you know, so I, I get, and I keep coming back to this because I, I guess the work that I do and I, I just, I saw you, you, you had a, an event the other day on Facebook that you were with some youth and Chief Davis was there and you were talking about stuff. So how, how, how is the conversation, you know, when you go out and do talk and you're, you're talking to your, and you're talking to your young men, how, how are they uh, when you guys are having, I know you're talking about education, socioeconomic, but I'm sure some of this stuff filters in. How, how do they navigate this? What is that conversation like for you? Um, I, again, I think the the larger national narrative is what drives it because oftentimes they're seeing uh, what we're seeing, which is black men being um, disproportionately surveilled and having these encounters with law enforcement that oftentimes result in injury or unfortunately death. And, and that has also become true in situations of women of color. And so when you have that imagery being streamed into your home, it creates an apprehension. And we have to understand that as an evolving community, we have to learn from one another. And a lot of what's embedded in institutions is often not rooted in fact. You know, these perceptions about Black males being hyper-predators, dangerous, oversized thugs. We, ha we have to be mindful of that narrative and that bias that has been psychologically impl implanted in us based on, you know, the things that we watch in music, the things that we see on television. We have to be direct about the biases that we hold and how those things impact the way we engage with communities and specific populations. And I think having these conversations with black boys in particular, I can understand their apprehension. Mm -hmm. But if we want to see a change in a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the gun violence, the gang involvement, we want to create more positive pathways. We have to support and expose our young folks to those pathways. Right. And oftentimes that's not happening. You know, right. right here in Durham, there's an electrical line technician program at Durham Tech where after 10 weeks, you become a certified electrical line technician. Yes, that program is free, but oftentimes um, our young men are not in the position where they can complete a 10-week certification program and not have any source of income because the program is full-time. Oh, but when they complete it, you're talking about an entry level job with the certification starting at about fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year. What? So when you create that kind of opportunity and you can support young men to expose them to those pathways, 
And I was so excited when this week the Durham Tech announced their guided career pathway program. Those are the things that we need to be investing in. So when we're seeing this conversation about defund the police, what it's really about is diverting funds to other opportunities. Yes. What if rather than housing these these men, oftentimes black men in the detention facility, what if we took those same financial allocations and put them to stipends that allow for young men who were interested in these 10-week programs to receive a stipend to cover their living expenses for them to get this certification and embark on a career? And that way, the gang and drug enterprise become less enticing because they now have a pathway that will lead to a successful and meaningful life because they have a career that allows them to be able to afford the standard of living that we see in this community. So when when we're having these conversations, contextualize to a strategy with measurable outcomes and not just a lot of theoretical conversation. And I think that's what I hear when I'm talking to, or there's uh, these opportunities to dialogue with, with boys and young men is that they earnestly want to be able to uh, accomplish things in life, but oftentimes they're not given that opportunity because they're not seen or they're not being communicated with in a way that is from an asset standpoint. They're often being looked at from a deficit standpoint, and and that creates the kind of narrative where people are uh, not really investing in them in terms of sharing information, resources, and connecting them with opportunity. And then that, and that's it. And uh, I mean that. Thank you for that, because I think that's, ex- you know, you've been doing that and, and working with young men for years. So I mean, it, it's it's that's the narrative. You got to make it available, put it in front of them. You got to reach them where they are. <laughs> you know, you got to have to support them while they're yeah. in it. I yeah. mean, it's yeah. not it's not enough just to say, "Oh, go to Durham Tech and enroll in this program." It's also while you're enrolled in this program, I'm going to be walking with you. Yeah. If you come, if you come across a barrier, I'm here to support you and yes. connecting you with other resources to get yes. past that barrier so yes. that you can succeed. Yes. And if we start putting our attention and energy into those type of efforts, we'll begin to see a much different outcome for so many young boys yes. and women in this community. Yes. And that's the work that you're doing. So yeah, I, and, and all of that keeps them, you know, how to maneuver, work, you know, dealing with law enforcement. They're out there. And it's just it's keep doing what you're doing. Like you said, man, you're just going to be unapologetic and you're just going to get it done. And I appreciate that. I really do. Um, I don't know. I just. Yeah. Young black males. And we got to you're doing the work and making sure that stuff sort of is accessible and available. And, and helping them and holding them and mentoring them is just huge. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing for the young black males in this community, because you do a lot. You do a lot. <laughs> you do a lot. And I'm, you know, and I'm, I could probably put a lot more on that. But, yeah, you, you're always doing something. So thank you very much. Well, thank I, you I, live the- by the, I live by the mantra to whom much is given, much is expected and required. And so the return yeah. on investment for all those who gave so much to me as a young person of this community, this is the return on their investment. Me pouring into other boys and young men so that they too can live out their dreams, whatever those dreams may be. But again, it it requires that investment and that's something that I'm committed to doing. So thank you so very much for that commendation. 
Oh, definitely, Dorn. Uh, so we're going to kind of wrap it up. And so just to kind of the last question that I like to ask and, and is, and I want definitely from your perspective, um, what is it that you think the judicial system and how could it be more compassionate? I think um, we can't confuse um, compassion and accountability. And, and people always have to be held accountable for the decisions that they make. And that accountability should not be that one poor decision ruins their life. Yes. Because oftentimes our decisions are rooted in the pathways that are available to us. It's based right. on our vision, what we've been exposed to. Right. And I think that if we want to see people who have had contact with the justice system or been justice involved, be able to find alternative pathways once that justice involvement concludes, we have to have a receptive community, that being the civic community, the political community, the, the business and professional community, being receptive to the fact that people make mistakes and they ought to be given an opportunity to show that they've been rehabilitated or habilitated and looking to do something different. And I think that when people are held to account for the things that they've done, there ought to be developmental opportunities. People shouldn't just be sitting in the detention facility doing absolutely nothing. If they don't have a, a high school diploma or GED, that ought to be a time where they can pursue that. If they don't have any uh, skills that are in demand in the workforce, I think we need to look at how do we integrate Durham Tech into our detention facility so that when these individuals are released, they have skills that make them competitive for the jobs that are coming to Durham. You know, those are the things that we can do to be smart about what it means to rehabilitate and give people second chances. And I think Durham is innovative enough, had the resources uh, to do it. And, and we have all the things that, you know, from the passion, the, the passionate community engagement folks, yeah. who, uh, a willing and able elected officials who are, are willing to consider diverse and um, unorthodox ideas and the resources of North Carolina Central, Durham Tech, Duke University, and all the many businesses that have relocated or expanded right here in this community. I mean, just last week, you we had an announcement of Google bringing a thousand yeah. jobs to this community. Yeah. And we need to be thinking about how do we prepare people for the demands of the workforce to ensure that they can compete? Because if they can't compete, then unfortunately, that's when alternative lifestyles become more attractive. Yeah. So we have to think about how do we reimagine some of the things that we do in our community so that everyone has a chance at the prosperity that exists in Durham. Wow. Thank you. That, that was, yeah, because you, you don't need to be defined by a mistake. And, and I you make it because, like I tell folks, I just didn't get caught. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, so that, so I get that. So, yeah, so thank you. So thanks. Thank you again for, for joining us. And I really appreciate it. Harmony Chavis was my co-host that requested you to be here. I'm sorry she wasn't here, but hopefully uh, when she listens to it, you will have answered all the questions that she may have wanted to, to ask you. So thank you, DeWarren. I really appreciate it. We will have uh, DeWarren's foundation link on here uh, 
that you can go visit and see all the work that he does. We'll, we'll also, is there a link for information for the Citizen Police Review Board that we may yeah. be able to put on? Okay. All right. I so we'll, we'll have that. that as well. Okay. So we'll have that as well. So thanks again for all of you for joining us. We really appreciate it and um, look forward to uh, chatting with you and hopefully listening. Tune in. And as always, stay well, stay safe, and peace. <laughs>